0: Our Father, how thankful we are that you are God Almighty, that you are the God of absolute control. You are the God of all power, all wisdom, all truth. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your care. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are really there, that you spoke the worlds into existence. One moment they didn't exist, the next moment they did. That's what Scripture says. That's either true or it isn't. All those stars, we see a few around here. When we drive up to the Rockies and we get up high, we're overwhelmed. You you created them all. You put them all in place. Ones we've never seen, never will see from this earth. And You oversee this planet. You oversee, you hold things, you hold all things together. You run the world, you sustain the world, you keep it in balance. You're the glue. We're thankful you're there. Because in our nick of the woods, we look around and we see things falling apart. How grateful we are to know you through Jesus Christ, your son. We're so thankful that he came to redeem us, to save us, to forgive us of our sins, to give us a purpose in life, to reconcile us with you, to give us a future and a hope. We're so thankful not only are are we saved from our sin, but, but, but you have something in mind for us, for each guy in this room. You've given us gifts. You've given us skills. Uh, you have a plan. You have a purpose. Uh, we've got our plans. We've got our how we think things are going to shake out, and they don't shake out that way. You've got something better in mind. We're learning to trust you. We're, we're learning to get to know you through your word. We need your wisdom. Every guy in this room, young, old, middle, whatever, wherever we are, we need you. We need your wisdom. We're thankful that you give it to us in your scriptures. We would ask for teachable hearts tonight so that this time would not be wasted, so that it would be profitable. Uh, You know every guy, you know every situation that's in his life, every circumstance, you know all about it. You know all things. For those who need encouragement, encourage, we pray. For those who need, uh, for those who need hope. Put hope in their hearts. For those with broken hearts, for those who have been crushed by, just in recent days, by some tragedy they never saw coming, remind them that you are near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. You hold us together when we're falling apart. What a great savior you are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, tonight we're going to continue this uh, series on anchoring. It's, it's loosely based loosely based I did a book in 1998 called Anchorman and the premise of the book um, really the key verse was Deuteronomy 6 you don't have to turn there but it, it, it it's basically they're getting ready to go into the promised land they're going to start a new civilization after 40 years of wandering and Moses says to them, "This is the commandment, six one of Deuteronomy. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is critical. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We're in trouble in this country and across the world because we've lost the fear of the Lord." You notice there, it says, so that you and your son and your grandson. And we've pointed this out. That is a very brief genealogy. Genealogies are very, very long. Go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. That's a brief genealogy. That you and your son and your grandson. That's uh, three links in a genealogy. You and your wife. Your son, he gets married. Kids. Then the grandkids, that, that. Those are three links in a family genealogy. Um, We made the statement that in that family chain, uh, if you're a father, if you're a grandfather, you were the one who was to anchor that chain in Christ. Now, here's the deal we have kids, we can raise them in the Lord, teach them the scriptures but they are free moral agents. And as most of us did when we were young, as the old hymn says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So, kids can wander and get away from what they were taught. And uh, the Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. There's no greater grief than to see them not walking in the truth. So, when we talk about anchoring the family chain, there's so much you can do. You, you can't save them. You can't convert them. You can't bring them to Christ. Only the Spirit can do that. Uh, if you have children who are away from the Lord, you know, don't get too discouraged, because there are probably more chapters to come, and you never know what God's gonna do. Uh, So, we've made the statement. The way that you anchor your family chain is that you basically follow the Lord God with all your heart today. You get all in with the Lord. And the Christian life is a hard life. It's not the hardest life. The hardest life is the life without Christ. But the Christian life is a hard life. It is not easy. Acts fourteen twenty-two: through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many. That's why you've got many. Philippians 129, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. I like the first part of the verse. I don't necessarily like the suffering part. But he tells us up front that the Christian life is a hard life. At some point in your journey with Christ, you're going to encounter a situation or a chapter of your life that's going to rock you and earthquake you and cause you to um, really question the goodness of God. Because in our lives, we've said this before in here, God works three ways. He works sovereignly in every detail, secondly, He works strangely and thirdly he works slowly we have our ex- our expectations our expectations of how god should work and god promises to bless us but the more you read the scripture the more you become familiar with the ways of god and they can be stunning and they can be shocking and they can take your breath away I have a premise tonight, and my premise is this. One of the greatest and most difficult tasks in the Christian life is coming to grips with the goodness of God. I'll say it again. One of the greatest and most difficult tasks in the Christian life is coming to grips with the goodness of God, with the goodness of God. It is common in the Christian life to struggle with the goodness of God last week we talked about Romans 8 and the fact that even after we come to know Christ what Paul describes in Romans 7 we have two natures we have a new nature in Christ we have a sin nature But we're still warring. That sin nature is still there, and we're still fighting. So the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things, and there's this turmoil. And we have a spiritual batting average, and a lot of us, we struggle as, God really loved me because I'm hitting under 200 in the Christian life. Um, I mean, mean, we know what the Scripture says. We know about the love of God. But, um, gosh, you know, we're, we're, I think a lot of us, and just from emails I got last week, a lot of us, the love of God, we know God likes us. We're not sure he loves us. Romans 8 tells us and, and just drives it home and seals it about the love of God. Now i got to turn to the goodness of God. I want to go to two passages that will demonstrate the struggle with the goodness of God. If, uh, many of you have encountered what is going to be, what we're going to see first in 2 Corinthians 1 and in Psalm 77. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 1 first. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is, uh, is very open about his life. It's the most, um, he, he's, he's very transparent about his own walk with the Lord and his struggles and what he's been through and all of this. He's just real honest and open. So in 2 Corinthians 1, we read this in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia. Now watch this carefully. When we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Now, that's pretty heavy. I remember the first time I read that. I I mean, that I can remember reading it. You know, sometimes you're reading through the Scripture, and you see a verse, and you swear you have never seen it before, but you know you have, but it just comes off the page. I I had a friend in town from California, and um, we were spending some time together on Monday. I went through a depression, I told you about, in my early 30s. pretty pretty significant. Um, Turned my world upside down Crying three, four hours a day Couldn't stop, I'd never been like that Um, It it was a hard time For me, it was a hard time for Mary It was, uh, I never saw it coming And somehow, and he knew me back then And somehow that came up And as we were talking I, I, I told him, I said I remember the day that I wanted to die that if the Lord had a said to me, go get on that Bayshore Freeway 101, go across Hillsdale, head down to San Carlos, and I'll send a tractor-trailer your way, and that term insurance is paid up for Mary and the kids. I wouldn't, I wasn't gonna do it. But, I, but for the first time in my life, I could understand how someone could be in so much despair that they would. I really wanted to die. Why? Because, and, and I have to tell you this, when I read this, and, and, and it was the Apostle Paul, it actually encouraged me. Uh, y- you remember affliction? We were burdened excessively. There's always burdens in life, but this is excessive. This is like in Psalm 42 when he says, all your, uh, all your waves have rolled over me. There's tremendous power in waves, even in small waves. And, and sometimes in a, tr- in a time of trial, we don't get hit by one wave. We get hit by a, a, a wave that knocks us off our feet, and then we scramble back to our feet. And, then, and before you can get a breath, you get hit by another wave. And, and you're, then you're really trying to recover and get your breath. And just as you come out of the water, you get hammered again from an, another wave. That's being burdened excessively beyond our strength. God will never give you more than you can handle, really. This says, I was burdened beyond my strength. Now, here's the thing about God. If he burdens you beyond your strength, he'll give you new strength. But you'll be gasping, and you'll be thinking, I'm not sure I can make this. I'm not sure I can make another step. Sometimes life gets that bad, that tough. so that we even the spirit of life itself. If it was up to me, I really don't want to keep living. Now, when you're in a situation, and you can, if you've ever been in a situation, and you can identify with that, one of your issues is going to be the goodness of God. What are you doing to me? I remember, I remember thinking on one of those dark, dark days of just absolute depression, and I thought I'd never get out of it, I can remember feeling like a quarterback who takes the snap. I go back, and my linemen come after me. (laughs) That's how I felt. I felt that God was after me. And, And I struggled deeply with the goodness of God. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? I don't get this. I don't understand it. I'm for you. Look at my jersey. It says, yay, Jesus. And you're just hammering me. That's when I found this verse. And then, right around that same time, I found Psalm 77. Let's go over there. Because here's another guy that's struggling with the goodness of God. And and see, the, the thing is, Whatever Paul's issues were, they could be different from what your issues are. We can be afflicted physically. We can be afflicted emotionally, relationally. It can be uh, health. It can be all kinds of different things, different angles, different issues. But man, the result is the same. You're just getting hammered. And you're wondering, where is the goodness of this God? So if you go to Psalm 77, you've got another guy. That's having a hard time, and and again, I love and I I love the scripture for its honesty, and the writer says this, and he he gets right to it. He says, "My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. So He's in trouble, but notice." how deeply he's in trouble. In the night, my hand was stretched out with weariness. This guy's not sleeping. He's he's just asking God for help. I mean, he's just looking, help me, pull me out of this. My soul refuses to be comforted. And sometimes when you're excessively burdened beyond your strength and the pressure is so great and you can't find comfort, Look at verse 3. When I remember God, I am disturbed. I'm glad that's in the Scriptures because there have been times in my life when when I remember God, it's disturbing because I can't figure out what the heck he's doing with me. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. When I sigh, my spirit then grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. You can't sleep. Sleepless nights, sleepless nights. The, what you need is sleep, it's the last thing you can get because you're so troubled in your heart. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. Now I don't want to go through the rest of the psalm but his issue is he cannot figure out this is a guy that's struggling with the goodness of God and if you read the whole psalm really what's happening is he can't figure out he's trying to pursue the Lord he loves the Lord he's seeking God but it seems like everything he touches turns to what he doesn't want it just falls apart he can't catch a break yet when he looks at the wicked when he looks at the wicked and when he looks at those who, uh, you know, are not seeking the Lord, I mean, he really, he really struggles. Now, what I just did here, here's what I just did. I just combined two psalms. When I just said that what he did was when he looked at those who were well-off, the wicked who were prosperous. Actually, that's Psalm 73. That's not 77. But Psalm 73 is related because in Psalm 73, you have a guy, this is where the guy is struggling with the, um, why do bad things happen to good people? In other words, Lord, I'm trying to serve you. Look at verse two of Psalm 73. Uh, let's start with verse one. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet my feet came close to stumbling, and my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death; their body is fat. That that doesn't mean what we mean today. They got everything they want. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Pride is their necklace. Garment of violence covers them. Verse 9, they have set their mouths against the heavens. In other words, those who are against you, those who are wicked, those who are committed all kinds of sin and they, they lie, they, they rape, they, they cheat, they do backroom deals, they do bribes, all this, they get away with everything. They're Teflon. They never get indicted. Everybody around them gets indicted. I don't get this. Why do they prosper? Why do they prosper? And guys like me who are trying to follow you, you're just hammering us. Well, that was his issue in Psalm 73. And then he gets down. He struggles. And then he gets down to verse 16, and he said, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end because there will be an end, you see. There will be. No one gets off scot-free. They might on this earth, but there is judgment, and all judgment has been given to the Son. So in Psalm 72, uh, 73, he's kind of struggling with the goodness of God. In Psalm 77, the guy's struggling with the goodness of God, and we're not completely sure what the issue is in Psalm 77, except when he remembers God, he's disturbed because something has happened to him. And he can't figure out what God's up to. If you love me so much, why is this happening in my life? And then you got Paul, who's excessively burdened beyond his strength so that he despairs even of life itself. Christian life is a hard life. We're going to go through some things that we never foresee. You're going to get rattled. You're going to get blindsided by something. Some unforeseen event that shocks you and stuns you and knocks your feet out from under you, and inevitably you're going to be asking why why I thought you were a good God?" Um, Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor, 300 years ago or so, wrote a book called a, a book called "The Art of Contentment." Um, Here's what he said, whatever change and trouble the child of God meets with, now listen carefully, it is all the hell he shall ever have. Whatever eclipse may be upon his name or estate, I may say of it that it is a little cloud which will soon blow over, then his gulf is crossed and his hell is passed. Death begins a wicked man's hell, but it puts an end to a godly man's hell. Think to yourself, what if I endure this? It is but a temporary hell, whatever you're in that you hate and that you don't understand. Indeed, if all our hell is here, it is an easy hell. Now, that's perspective. Uh, many guys in here have been through some kind of hell, the hell of cancer, the hell of divorce, the hell of uh, betrayal, the hell of, you know, you just, everybody's got their own stuff. But if you know Christ, our God is sovereign not over not over the good things that just happened to us, but he's sovereign over all things that happen. And, um, uh, There's a purpose in it. And the thing is, at the time, we can't see it. Flip over to Ephesians 2 real quick. Let me show you this in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, those are very familiar words to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast, So this is how we come to know Christ. By grace, we're saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works that no man should boast. It's a sheer gift of God that we're given eternal life through Christ. He pulls us by the Holy Spirit to to the Lord. We hear the gospel. We say, Jesus, come into my life. But but see, we usually quit at verse 9. Not as a result of works so that no man may boast, but you got to keep going. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared. Not good works to be saved. We're saved by grace, back in verse 8. But see, God saves us, and he redeems us from our sin, and then what he's going to do is he works in our life and begins to mature us in Christ. He's going to use us in the kingdom to do something that will benefit the kingdom and benefit others. Those are good works that he has in mind. For you, and then he has in mind for me. We don't know what they are, but he knows. So he takes men that were away from him, not interested in him. He pulls us to himself. He gives us new hearts. He gives us eternal life. And now he's going to start the process of maturing us and using us um, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Watch this. Which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in there. Uh, Interesting, the the word we are his workmanship. Uh, It's the Greek word poema. It's uh, where we would get our word poem. We're God's poem. I find that interesting. Because once again, the first time I ever understood this was in uh, the darkest chapter of my life when I was in that depression. And Mary told me, she said, Steve, I, I happened to hear Chuck Smith on the radio today, founder of Calvary Chapels. And he was talking about Ephesians 2.10. I can still remember walking in, she's in the kitchen doing something, and we got these little kids running around, and it's just chaos. And I'm so depressed, I can hardly see straight. I don't know what I'm doing. I had this young dynamic church. It's a long story. Now I'm in my second church, small church, traditional, full of old people. I was 32. They were about the age I am now. I mean, I was depressed. And she said, Yeah, and she said, You know what? You got to listen to that. He comes on the night. So I listened to it. And I'll never forget. He said, yeah, that's the word poema. And I went, poema? We're God's poem? And then he talked about his story. Um, sometimes, and some of you guys are saying, no, wait a minute. You're, so, Ferrari, you're telling me I'm God's work? And you're telling me I'm God's poem? That's what it says. Well, if you knew what was going on in my life right now, let me tell you something. There's no rhyme. (laughs) Aren't aren't poems supposed to rhyme? If you knew what was going on in my life right now, there is no rhyme or reason. Now, see, to the guy in Psalm 72, there was no rhyme or reason. To the guy in Psalm 77, I'm so troubled I cannot speak. When I remember God, I'm disturbed. Why? There is no rhyme or reason to what you're doing to me. Where's your goodness? Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, our affliction in Asia, we were excessively burdened beyond our strength. We despaired even a life. My life has fallen apart, and I'm God's poem? I thought poems were supposed to rhyme. Yeah. That's what I was thinking When I heard that message from Chuck Smith, I'm looking around. My life absolutely was in the ditch. And I'm God's poem. And I'm thinking, and see, the reason I I brought that up, there's no rhyme or reason, is that that's what I was thinking. There's no rhyme or reason to this. But when you stop and think about it, here's a question Does every word in a poem rhyme? No. You don't get a. You don't get a rhyme until you get to the end of the sentence. So, here's the deal. When you're in the middle of a sentence, and some of you guys said, yeah, I've been, in, I've been in the middle of this thing for a long time. You know what's wild? And this is what happened to me. It's possible where you are, you've been there so long, you think there'll never be a rhyme or a reason. You could be two words away from a rhyme. Because, see, trials and afflictions, these seasons, these, these chapters that are very heavy and very hard and very difficult, and you know if you're in one right now, they have a beginning, they have a middle, and they have an end. Because God oversees all of them. My times are in your hand, Psalm 31. All of my times are in your hand. You see. So, these, these chapters of my life, have a purpose and these seasons of affliction and hardship that depression for me was a season it was a chapter that had a beginning a middle and end the problem is I didn't know where I was but see when you think there is no rhyme or reason the the fact of the matter is there is there is a reason and there will be a rhyme you're just not there yet you're just not to the end yet is this making any sense at all. But see, it's in the middle of the sentence where there's no rhyme or reason. As far as you can tell, we question the goodness of God. Not only are you going to struggle with this, your kids are going to struggle with this. Your grandkids, as they get older, they're going to struggle with this. We have a generation right now that is struggling with it, A, a young generation that's coming up. Uh, I mentioned this book a while back, Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. The problem with this book, when you start quoting it, you want to you want to quote the whole book. I can't do that. But you know about the rise of atheism, and, you know, it's so strong. It's in the water. It's in the air. It's and One of the things Keller is pointing out, that we're seeing uh, a lot of, young people raised in Christian homes, evangelical homes, raised in Christian schools, Bible churches, that, um, that struggle with God and the goodness of God. Some have left the faith. Some um, have major issues because of the problem of evil, that bad things happen to good people. So I'm just going to dive in here. Keller says this, the problem of evil is a good case study of how background beliefs control our supposedly strictly rational thought. And you say, what's background beliefs? I don't have time to explain it. I'd have to go back and give you more quotes. But everyone has background beliefs that you bring in to where you are right now. Doesn't matter who you are. Okay. James Wood, not the car dealer in Denton, (laughs) and Barbara Ehrenreich explain how the problem of evil and suffering in the world was, now watch this, was decisive in preventing them from believing in God as young adults. Wood, who was raised in an evangelical Christian home, now get this, says that the cruelty and evil of actual human life would make life pointless, even if God exists. Wood calls this objection to the existence of God so obvious and so old, but that really isn't the case. The book of Job, for example, presents the outrageousness of undeserved suffering as well as any ancient text, yet in no way does it present it as an objection to the existence of God. But see, in this generation, it's a huge objection to the existence of God. If he's good, why is there all this evil? He must not be there. Ancient people were arguably much more acquainted with brutality, loss, and evil than we are, and that's true. Their literature and the book of Job is only one example is filled with laments about inexplicable suffering. "'Yet there is virtually no ancient thinker who reasoned, from, "'who reasoned from such evil "'that, therefore, there couldn't be a God.'" Let me say that again. "'There is virtually no ancient thinker "'who reasoned from such evil "'that, therefore, there could not be a God.'" Why does this argument against God's existence seem so rational and convincing today? Stay with me. He goes on and says, "'Charles Taylor explains why modern people "'are far more likely to lose their faith "'over suffering than those in times past.'" He says it is because culturally our belief and confidence in the powers of our own intellect have changed. Ancient people did not assume that the human mind had enough wisdom to sit in judgment on how an infinite God was disposing of things. It is only in modern times that we get the certainty that we have all the elements we need to carry out a trial of God. We're arrogant. Only when this background belief in the sufficiency of our own reason shifted did the presence of evil in the world seem to be an argument against the existence of God. There is then a significant backdrop of faith behind modern, modern arguments against God on the basis of evil. I want to say that again. There is a significant backdrop of faith behind modern arguments against God on the basis of evil. It is assumed, not proven that a God beyond our reason could not exist, and therefore we conclude that he doesn't exist. This is, of course, a form of begging the question. Our background beliefs set up our conscious reasoning to fail to find sufficient evidence for God. So the young James Wood and Barbara Ehrenreich, brilliant young thinkers that they were, found the thesis of the monotheistic God wanting. Now watch this. But it wasn't true that their reasoning had undermined their faith. Instead, it was that a new kind of faith, one in the power of human reason and the ability to comprehend the depth of things, had displaced an older, more self-effacing kind of faith. It's the arrogance of this age. Can we understand everything about God? No. God's a mystery. Isaiah 55, 8. My ways are not your ways. And see, here's the deal. We think his ways should be our ways. How many times have I said, I don't get what you're doing? I've said it a lot in just recent weeks. I don't understand this. Now, the difference is, I've, I've got a lot more miles on my tires than I used to. And I've been through some things, and I've become, I've become convinced that his ways are not my ways. In, in fact, I will tell you this, I scare myself, I frighten myself, because sometimes I get so wedded to an idea or the way that something should be, I scare myself. What do I know? The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We don't have the bandwidth to understand God. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And that's precisely right. Things happen to us that, are, that are, just devastate us, and we don't understand how a good God can allow that to happen in our lives it's tough it's hard it's difficult it can either make you bitter or you can keep hanging in there with christ and the scriptures and trust him that he knows best even though we don't understand if you go back to that second corinthians passage real quick if you go back to the that that passage in second corinthians yeah Paul Paul was just man he, he was just hammered. sometimes it's like sometimes when, when these calamities occur that just shock you and stun you to me it's sometimes it's like God puts you in a blender and turns it on tin. I mean it just I, I mean you know off from down it's just it just it's just chaos. Now watch this verse let's read verse eight again, second Corinthians. for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Okay, that's tough. Watch verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Watch this. That we would not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Now, see, this is the stuff we have to learn in the Christian life. Our our problem is just what Keller... We're so impressed with ourselves, we trust in ourselves. We trust... That we know what's best we trust we know the way things ought to go we trust that our plan is the best plan but it's not he says this great father my ways are not your ways i'm not going to do this the way you think i ought to do it i'll shock you and stun you and he'll do it huh. my ways are not your ways my thoughts are not your thoughts Boy, that's true my, my thought is, is that God just ought to bless me. And he gives me a lot of blessing. But sometimes, <laughs> he enrolls me in the school of disappointment. And I'm shocked and I'm stunned and I'm hurt and I'm crushed and I'm devastated and I think my life is pretty much over. Go to Romans 11, if you would, please. I've got to say one more thing about this. We all know God's good, and we're going to talk about the goodness of God here in just a minute. I'm going to give you six foundational facts about the goodness of God, but not yet. Romans 11:22 says this, Behold, then, the goodness and severity of God. You could could blast right past that and hardly ever catch it. That Greek word in the New American Standard that's translated kindness can also be translated goodness. It can go either way, the goodness or the kindness, whatever your translation says. It says one of the two. Behold, then, the goodness and severity of God. Because if he is your father, you will experience both. He loves us. Absolutely, he loves us. He loves us so much that when we need it, he can be severe. And when we fight him and when we're stubborn and when we are dead set on doing it our way and doing it on our time schedule and doing it, you better buckle up. You say, how could God be severe? And, and sometimes, and I understand this, there are some things in the Scripture where God had ordered his people to do some things, where people, other nations against them are destroyed. And I, I, I'm not saying, th- 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 this, this stuff is disturbing. But you see, we've got a limited view, we've got a limited perspective, Um in Hebrews 4, Chuck, Chuck actually referred to this last Sunday, and this to me explains the severity of God that we don't understand sometimes. Uh, we're familiar with the passage in Hebrews 4 that talks about the Word of God. Let me get to it here. Look at uh, Hebrews 4:12. For the word of God is living and active, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the devotion, division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to watch this. Enable to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now watch this. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows our hearts. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Sometimes we can put on that veneer. Sometimes we can put on that uh, that lacquer of spirituality, and we know all the things to say, and we know all the hymns by memory, and we know even Bible verses some. And then, but you see, it's we're one way on the outside, we're one way on the inside. So, Chuck was talking, Matthew 23, how Jesus goes after the religious leaders. And uh, he bulldozed those suckers because he knew their hearts, and they hated him, and they killed him. Because you see, he exposed what was inside. He knows what's inside. He sees it all. There's no creature hidden from his sight. So here's the deal, and I got to give you one other scripture. It's Romans nine fourteen, which says, "There is no injustice with God. God is God is never unjust. He may be severe, but if He's severe, He is not unjust. He can't be unjust. It's not in His nature. It's not in His. Care. It's something He can't do. He can't sin. He can't lie. He cannot be unjust." So, if God, if we see something occur and God is severe, when God is severe, he is still just, good, he is appropriate, and he is measured. There is absolutely no ground or basis upon which to indict him. But you see, we think we've got all the facts. And we don't have all the facts. Now, i got to move, quickly. Let me give you six foundational facts about the goodness of God. Number one, God himself is the standard of good. Let me give you a one-paragraph quote from uh, Wayne Grudem, great theologian of our day. One of the greats. Wayne writes this, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. In this definition, good can be understood to mean worthy of approval, but this raises the question, approval by whom? Because we are mere creatures, we are not free to decide by ourselves what is worthy of approval and what is not. Ultimately, therefore, God's being and actions are perfectly worthy of his own approval. He is, therefore, the final standard of good. Jesus implies this in Luke 18, 19 when he says, no one is good but God alone. The psalms frequently affirm that the Lord is good, Psalm 100, verse 5, or exclaim, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, Psalm 106.1. We can therefore understand the meaning of good as being that which God approves, because there is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of whatever is consistent with that character. So, he's the supreme authority on everything, and he's the supreme authority on what is good, not us, Jesus the supreme. Number two. Second foundational fact about the goodness of God. God is the source of all good to all creatures. James 1.17. We'll look at a few verses here, guys. James one. Verse 17 says this. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shifting shadow. You also have... Now, now I'm going to say this. God is the source of all good to all creatures. Okay? Every good and perfect gift. God does good to everyone. He does more good to his people, but he's good to all. Uh, In James, it says the rain falls on the just and the... God's given gifts. He's given good gifts to everyone. There is so much atheism. There is so much naturalism. There is so much Darwinianism. Everywhere, we're surrounded by it. God isn't there. God doesn't exist. If you look at Psalm 104, verse 10, it's talking about God's gift of care and life and his sustaining power over all his works. I can't read the whole thing, Um, but man... Verse 5, he established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. Uh, He talks about the waters. Verse 8, he talks about the mountains. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down in the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, the waters speaking of, that they will not return to cover the earth. Look at 10. He sends forth springs in the valleys. You you, You ever come upon a natural spring? Man, that's the greatest thing in the world. God put that there. He put it there. Uh, He causes the, um, he sends forth spring in the valley, verse 10. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. He feeds the animals. He sustains the animals. He gives them water. Uh, You go to 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man that he may bring forth uh, food from the earth. God's running this whole show. He invented it. He sustains it. He keeps us going. Uh, 18, the high mountains are for the wild goats. Uh, 19, he made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness, it becomes light, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. 23, man goes forth his work to his work and to his labor until evening. 24, O Lord, how many are your works and wisdom? You have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is a sea great and broad in which are swarms without number, animals both great and small. Look at verse 27. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. This is the goodness of God. It's the goodness of Almighty God. But in Romans 1, it says, but they did not give thanks. We better make sure we're giving thanks. It's his goodness that keeps us going. It's his goodness that sustains us. So, God is the source of all good to all creatures. Number three, third foundational fact. God's actions are good, comma, even the most devastating of actions. I'll say it again. God's actions are good, comma, even the most devastating of actions. So I'd give you Psalm 119, 68, which says the Lord is good and does good. But you say, Steve, let me tell you what happened to me. This is horrible. Or let me tell you what happened to my wife. Or let me tell you, yeah. Because you see, Christians are not exempt from evil. We're not exempt. God's actions are good, comma, even the most devastating of actions. Um, So, Romans 8, 28. We were in Romans 8 a a bunch last week. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together. You know this verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good. Uh, Leukemia is not good. Bankruptcy is not good. Um, Divorce isn't good. Sexual assault isn't good. There's all kinds of evil in the world joseph was sold into slavery at the age of 17 by his brothers that's evil that's evil so let's ask a question could god have stopped the evil the answer is yes god could have stopped the evil did god stop the evil them selling him into slavery the answer is no do you think joseph struggled when he was sold into slavery With the goodness of god i guarantee you, you did He struggled with it for years. It was evil. God could have stopped it. Did God stop it? No. Later in Genesis 50, at least 20 years have gone by, maybe 30, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to bring about this present result. So here's the thing about evil. God is never the author of evil. Evil is a gadget on God's Swiss army knife that he uses for the good of his people and the glory of his name. But he's never the author of evil because he can't do evil. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah 6. So Romans 8, 28, and everyone in here has experienced some kind of evil. So get this. And we know that God causes all things. And get the full brunt of this. God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What that means is, if it's been bankruptcy, if it's been... Whatever it's been, what He will do is somehow He will take that evil and He will work it for your good. Because He is good. He takes the worst and turns it to good. Can't tell you how, can't tell you when. I came across this from this pastor in Texas, he wrote this thing, Sovereign Serendipities, Charles Swindle. <laughs> Swindle. He writes this. In my more than 80 years of on earth, more than 50 of them in ministry, I have made a trade. It's been a wonderful trade. I've traded youth for truth. And I wouldn't be years younger if I could make it happen. I think more than anything else, it is the hardship, it is the difficulty, it is the dead-end street that shapes us. It is the trial that occurs that makes us into the individuals God wants us to be if the attitude is right and the learning is still on a willing curve. It's how we react, how we respond to the pains and the struggles. For some, it's bankruptcy. For some, injustice committed against us. For some, it's disappointments. For some, criticisms. Sometimes even the divorce that just rocked us back on our heels turns us around, gets our attention, and puts us into an orbit we would have never have otherwise entered. My short thought this week is that it wasn't the things I planned or the things I hoped for in life, but it was the serendipities, watch this, the results of those surprises that leveled me and turned my life in the direction God wanted it to go. I wouldn't trade how old I am or the experiences I've gone through or the heartaches and disappointments I've endured, nor should you, because all of it has worked together in God's plan. Those are wise words. They're hard words, but they're true words. Fourth uh, foundational fact about the goodness of God. God's gifts are good. That's it. God's gifts are good. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, And what do you have that you did not receive? Anything you have that is a strength, anything you have by which you make a living. Do you have the ability to speak? Do you have the ability to think? Do you have the ability to process? Do you have the ability to use a a, a, a computer? Can you send an email? Can you, can you function? Think of your life if you had a debilitating stroke. Joseph Patrick Kennedy, the father of the Kennedy boys, fabulously wealthy, incredibly corrupt, he was. Read the biographies his friends wrote about him. You know what his greatest fear was? A debilitating stroke. And I remember when his son got inaugurated, and I remember seeing that old man in that wheelchair. And that man ran the world, he thought. And it was all taken away. And what do you have that you did not receive? All of God's gifts are good. Now, let me give you a verse on this. Psalm 84, 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Sometimes we think God is shortchanged. We won't come out and say it because we know we're not supposed to. But sometimes in our heart, we feel that God has given us a raw deal because we look at our Christian friends, and they have this, or they have this, and they have this, and we don't have those things. But God has blessed them with it, and the thought is, I would sure like to have that. Why don't I have that? especially when it says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The answer is, the reason you don't have it is that for you right now, it's not a good thing. If it was a good thing, you would have it. This is how we operate with our kids. Have you not given your uh, son or daughter a good gift when they reached a certain age? But it would have been foolish to have given that gift five years prior good gift. They're just not ready for it. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. (laughs) So, you trust him. You just trust him. He'll get you through. And you don't get envious. You, You know what I'm watching around this country? So much of what we're seeing in this country right now is the breaking of the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. It's coveting. Ah oh, you were born with that. Ah oh, you've got that. Oh this, this. well, I want that. I w- I, I- thou shalt not covet. That's what's going on. We always compare ourselves with people who have more. Why don't you go to Haiti for two weeks? Let's go to Puerto Rico right now. they trade places with you in a minute. The richest man in Puerto Rico would trade places with you right now. Number uh, five, God's disciplines are good. God's disciplines are good. Um, let's go to Hebrews 12. Very quickly. God uh, is a good father. And uh, if you're a good father, one of the things you will do is that you will discipline your children. Now, there's nothing worse than seeing a spoiled brat. Is there? There's there's nothing worse than seeing a kid who's never been disciplined. Hebrews uh, 12 Give me a second here. Hebrews 12, 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Watch this. He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When you're in a hard time, you've got to keep a teachable spirit. Just keep, stay teachable. You know the thing, when my dad, when my, my dad would discipline, my dad loved me, my dad would do anything, I mean, but I'll tell you when my, my dad knew I had to learn the fear of the Lord, and the way you learn the fear of the Lord is to learn the fear of your father. Never was abusive, never anything like that. But he would discipline, and he would spank. Oh, I wanted to go my own way. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do this. You know what? I had to learn to obey. And in the Christian life, the same thing is true. Sometimes my dad made mistakes. I've made mistakes with my kids. You've made mistakes with your kids. He's never made a mistake. He disciplines us for our good. So stay teachable. And and you know what? Obey him. Why would you keep fighting him? It's just going to... He's gonna go, he's gonna strap you again, man. (laughs) It's back to the woodshed. Why don't you yield, submit, and bow and say, Not my will, but thine be done. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes when we're suffering and we're in difficulty, you're saying, So that means I've sinned and, and I'm being disciplined. Not necessarily. Sometimes we're in affliction and hardship because we have sinned and we're stubborn and we want to obey but sometimes you're in hardship and in pain because you've been obedient. And you say, excuse me, what are you talking about? John 15. And we're about done here. So John 15, Jesus said this, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Watch this. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear what? More fruit. If you're following the Lord, you're obedient, you're fruitful. Praise God. You know what he'll do? He'll come along like you do with your rose bushes, and he will prune you. Now, if you're a rose bush and you get pruned, we're talking pain. And sometimes, if you're afflicted, it's not because you've been disobedient. It's because you've been fruitful. And what he wants to do in your life is make you more fruitful. Yeah, but I don't want to I, I I don't want that. You're out of luck. <laughs> it, it's it's just what he does. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to be used by God? Oh yeah, yeah, I want to be used by God. Okay. Well then you're gonna get pruned. And you will be disciplined. And you'll receive grace. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Watch this. Who comforts us in all our affliction, whether you're being pruned or whether you're being disciplined. Watch this. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When I was in that depression, I was young. I had a seminary degree. You know, I thought I was pretty smart. You know, I knew what I was doing. I was, you know, that was pretty hot stuff wouldn't say that, but I thought it. Uh, I got that seminary degree. I was actually going to get another seminary degree, and the reason was I wanted to be used by God. And see, I kind of thought seminary degrees uh, did the trick. See, you, you get one, you get two, and you can really be used by God. You know what I found out? Seminary degrees don't qualify you for ministry. Seminary degrees don't necessarily qualify you for being used by God. Suffering equips you to be used by God because the comfort you receive, that same comfort, you give to others. That's how God works, because God's good. Lastly, God's delays are good. God's delays are good. Take a look at Galatians 6, 9. This is our last one, and we're done. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. I recently talked to a a guy who loves the Lord, and he told me, you know, I was so frustrated today, I just basically closed up my Bible. I just, what's the use? I've been in this for so long. I am so discouraged. I am so defeated. I just, I don't get what God is doing. I just... You try to be faithful you try to walk with him you try to and i just don't see i don't see the i don't i don't see him responding what he was saying to me i'm struggling with the goodness of god this is going on and on and on six nine let us not lose heart in doing good watch this for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary He'll send a deliverance. He'll send a mercy. He'll send a harvest. He'll send a reward in, in, in due time. God doesn't give premature mercies, they're ripe. They're right. So you keep walking with Him and you keep doing good and you trust Him, He'll come through. Philip de uh, is pastor in California, great preacher. New book is out. He's teaching at Dallas Seminary this week. He was nice enough to give me a copy of his book. Roland Hill was an English preacher of yesteryear who loved to bring the love of God to the poor and struggling of London. On one occasion, he was given a rather large sum of money to help support the pastor of a church in a low-income area. Thinking that the amount was too much to send in one lump sum, he decided to send it in stages. So each week, Roland Hill sent a portion of the gift with a note that simply said, more to follow. Within a few days, the pastor received another envelope containing the same amount of money with the same message. More to follow. Then there came a third and then a fourth. In fact, they continued with regularity, always accompanied by those comforting and cheering words until the entire sum had been exhausted. Wherever you are let me say this to you up until now god's been good and god has provided and god has made a way has he not yeah but steve we're getting right okay there's more to follow there's more to follow yeah we got enough to get to the end of the week but you're not there yet are you there's more to follow oh and by the way with roland hill Uh, At a certain point, the entire sum had been exhausted. That's impossible with God. It's impossible. So, in summary, what's our takeaway as men? What's our takeaway as uh, husbands, as fathers, as grandfathers? What should be our response to the goodness of God? And may I say this is really important how we respond to these things in life because we've walked with God longer than our kids, grandkids, they're going to encounter disappointment with God, trying to figure it out. What they need is a steady, stable influence. What's our response to this? Well, it's actually Galatians 6.10. This is what we should walk out of here with. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. You see, what we do as we walk with the Lord, as we walk with Christ, as we're his representatives, we have our sphere of influence, what we do is we look at the Father and his goodness to us and we imitate that to those that he has put in our sphere of influence. That's how it works. We show him the Father through our frail efforts. And we tell them from our experience, and you can tell and you ought to tell them your stories, that he is good and that he can be trusted because he can. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there's more to come. We've received your forgiveness. We've received your mercy. We've received all these gifts. You are such a benevolent, kind, gracious. You are a generous God. You're just generous, but there's more to follow. There's, there's more to come. So for the one who's here and struggling, the one who's here and is in the depth of, just the depth of the depths, may you sustain them with your goodness. And may they keep their Bibles open because it's in your word that we hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.